The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from warbirdradio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at warbirdradio.com. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Suhoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped. You've got leg restraints on. You're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extended! Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Can I start off by asking you your full name? Charles Ernest Sharp. And your uh, rank that you got to? Flight Lieutenant. And your service number? Uh, 157688. Right. RAF. RAF, yes. <clears throat> and your uh, date and place of birth? Uh, date 21520. And place Skelton, Cumberland, England. Okay. And you grew up in Skelton? No, no. We left there when I was uh, three or four, something like that. And we moved to the uh, <coughs> to the coast, to well near the coast, to uh, a place called Gosforth, at the head of uh, Wastwater. Okay. Which is the deepest lake in England and is bounded by the highest mountain in England, right. which is about 10 feet higher than the summit of the uh, desert road here. <laughs> <laughs> so my claim to have climbed Scorfield Pike when I was eight with my father uh, rather paled into insignificance when I went over the desert road by bus. <laughs> so... So um, when you were growing up, was there much of an influence on you of aviation? Did you see much in the way of it? I remember seeing the King's Cup once. Uh, the King's Cup came round. Uh, we were on, on the route for the King's Cup. And I remember uh, seeing an aircraft uh, which was flown, I found out later, by a man called Atchley. 
And there are stories about uh, the, the two brothers, actually. And uh, one of them was uh, flying around before the war in the Air Force. And uh, he spotted an aircraft carrier in the channel. <coughs> Excuse me. So he thought he would land on it just for the hell of it. But he forgot that the lift was down. <laughs> so <laughs> that was the actualism. <laughs> okay. Uh, the King's Cup was a, an air race, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Yes, round Britain. What sort of aircraft were in it? Oh, they were all biplanes, I suppose. Uh, when they came past us, it was a foul day, and uh, it was getting a bit dark. Uh, we only saw two or three planes. Mm. Okay. They were quite low. I so could read the letters on the the registration letters, so they were as low as that. Mm. <laughs> so what, at what point were you looking at getting into the Air Force then? When war broke out, uh, I was asked the uh, question when I enlisted, uh, why do you want to join the Air Force? I said, well, I like to learn to fly at someone else's expense, which is fair enough, I suppose. So um, when was that? What date that you joined up? I joined up in October 39. Right, so you were right in the beginning. Well, no, I signed up then, and uh, they gave me a number, a little badge, which said, uh, which indicated that I, I was already enlisted and told me to go home and be a good boy and uh, they'd send for me when they were ready. And of course it took them a year to get ready, during which time I was living then down in uh, near Croydon, in the south of, uh, south of London, and so I saw the practically the whole of the Battle of Britain from the ground. Were you wishing you could be up there? I was, yes, of course. I never thought I would uh, get up in a Spitfire. <coughs> so tell me about when you first did get in, when they called you up. Uh, well, we were sent down to a place called Babacan in the southwest of England, near Torquay, and billeted in hotels there just to get kitted out. And uh, we were supposed to get all our uniforms and so on, but. Uh, a bit short then, and uh, so instead of getting two of some things, you only got one and never saw the second one. Uh, from there, we were sent to initial training wing at uh, Aberystwyth in Western Wales. And uh, incidentally, Aberystwyth had been uh, shelled by a submarine, German submarine. Uh, I think it just fired a couple of shots and missed everything, which was fortunate. Uh, but to get to Aberystwyth, uh, they put us in a, on the train, on a coach, they had a, a whole coach for us. And this coach was shunted around from train to train, instead of us being shunted around, which was quite a good idea. The only snag was that when we got to Bristol, it was the middle of the night, and uh, they pulled the train up between two platforms so that we couldn't get out. And there was an air raid in process, 
which, which wasn't very funny. However, we survived that, but we got to Alberstwith on the seventh train. I remember that. It was a heck of a journey. And there we did uh, sort of marching and uh, basic skills, uh, basic uh, stuff. Uh, Morse code, uh, airmanship, uh, maintenance, and all kinds of things which are no damn good to anybody. Uh, we did uh, marching and drill, of course. Um, we had uh, quite a, an amusing incident whilst I was there, which you might be interested in. Um, there was a fellow on my course who... Oh, we had to do Morse uh, by lamp as well as by buzzer. And we had the instructor was a corporal corporal navigator, because they, they weren't all sergeants then, and uh, this guy had been badly wounded and uh, he walked with a huge limp and he was, um, he was quite an interesting character but uh, he was a bit slapdash. <coughs> and he said uh, one day, right, well we'll do the, uh, the lamp. Now to do the lamp it took uh, two people, one to write and one to call out what was being sent. So the writer had his back to the uh, to the sender and the distance would be about from here to the other side of the room. And uh, the, uh, the reader uh, of course was facing facing the uh, sender. So uh, if you failed that, you were out. And there was a guy uh, called Fromings. Fromings was a nice, quiet sort of character. And uh, he came to me and he said, uh, I'm going to fail this. He said, I haven't got a, I can't do anything with this uh, lamp. He said, can you help me in any way? I said, well, I'll have a go, but uh, polish your buttons up. We didn't have battle dress then, so he polished his buttons up and we went down to this uh, place. The, it was a local park and the instructor stood over there and uh, Fromings and I, uh, I was uh, going to uh, write, so I had my back to the, uh, to the sender and he was facing him. So I said, right, well, you've got your buttons polished, for God's sake, stand still, absolutely. And I moved my head around so that I could see the reflection, and I got him through. Six months later, he was killed. And <laughs> bomber command, yeah. There was another lad on that course who was killed about nine months later, I think. When he was killed, he was 16 and a half in a Spitfire. So he must have joined at about uh, just over 15. He looked it too. So that was uh, Aberystwyth. We graduated from there and uh, went flying then. Went up to uh, Sealand number one course uh, 
the FTS, Flying Tigers, which I thought was the most horrible aeroplane I ever flew. Very difficult. If you can fly a Tiger, you can fly anything. Uh, from there, we went to uh, Bryce Norton, which became a very well-known place, and therefore uh, SFTS Flying Oxfords. I was a bit disappointed to end up on twins rather than singles, but uh, there you were. So I uh, soloed on, a, on an Oxford after an hour and a half, which was uh, pretty good because uh, flying a twin is a rather different proposition from flying a single. And uh, so from, I got an above average assessment there, so which I was very happy about. And I was posted to uh, an OTU bow fighter, OTU night fighters. And there I almost met my doom. I was shot down at night spent the next six months in hospital whilst they spliced up my back uh, with half my leg. And uh, then I came, uh, oh, to finish the story, whilst I was in hospital, I was nursed by, well, there were three sisters running the ward in the RAF hospital. I was nursed by a, a very nice sister who was, she was a bit older than I was, so there was no question of romance. But we were just good mates, and she really, really looked after her, after me. And when I left hospital, I kept in touch for, I don't know, a couple of years or more. And uh, she uh, told me what she was up to, and eventually she told me she'd got married. Married to a New Zealander, she was an English girl. Married to a, a Kiwi, who was on in Bomber Command, and that was that. But uh, I had to go to the hospital where she was then stationed uh, after I'd finished my tour, because I was going out to the Far East on ferry duty, delivering new aircraft, pick them up from the factory, test them and take them out. And for that we had to have some rather exotic injections and you could only get them done at certain RAF hospitals so I flew down to this place and uh, went up and uh, found her. She was in bed, she was uh, a patient. She damaged her back in uh, lifting some hulking great urban I presume. So that was it and it was the last time I saw her. Uh, after we came out here to live uh, I started to look up any Kiwis that I had known, and also I thought I would look her up. Well, of course, finding somebody who's married to somebody called Wood, whose initials you don't even know is a bit tricky. However, one day I was looking through the Herald and I found a, a man who uh, had died in Napier, a former squadron leader, Wood, Bomber Command, who happened to be a rear gunner, which is unusual rank for a rear gunner. Uh, he was beloved husband of Nancy, uh-uh, which rang the bell with me. I didn't, uh, I just tucked it away in my head, and about a year later, we were down in Napier 
on a uh, bus trip and uh, so I said to my wife, I'm, I'm going to ring this, uh, see if I can find this person. Uh, well, the, I should explain that the man's name was a wee bit unusual. It was something like Owen George or something like that. The O was definite. So I looked up Woods in the Napier directory and sure enough there was O.G. Wood. So I rang this number and uh, the conversation went exactly like this. I can remember it word for word. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, is that Mrs. Wood? Yes. She had a rather distinctive voice. Oh, uh, formerly Nancy Parrish. Yes. I said, well, my name's Sharp. Charles. Just like that. And it was 47 years, I think, since we had uh, spoken or seen one another. However, when I came out of hospital, uh, I mooned around for a while. I was uh, uh, posted to various uh, places. And uh, eventually I ended up on a PAFU, uh, Advanced Flying Unit, where we were, they had a, a flight of uh, people who were being re rehabilitated. The rest of the place was inhabited by people uh, who had been trained in Canada uh, and didn't know their way around. So they had to get used to the British and uh, European countryside where uh, that railway line was not definitely that railway line. It was one of a hundred going in that direction. So they had to learn all this. Anyhow, uh, from there I was posted to uh, Dice in the north of Scotland, Aberdeen. Uh, which was a Spitfire OTU for photo reconnaissance. And uh, there I had my first flight on a Spitfire. The easiest aeroplane I ever flew. Beautiful aeroplane. Uh, nearly came to grief on my first flight because the uh, prop wasn't automatic. It had to be put into fine pitch, and I, if somebody left it at coarse pitch, and trying to take off in coarse pitch was not very easy. It's like trying to move a car off in uh, high gear. Uh, there's a big hill at the end of the runway, and whilst the thing accelerated on the ground reasonably, when it came to this hill, it didn't want to climb, but the hill was uh, sort of like that, and uh, the plane was like that, and we just sort of staggered up a few feet higher than the hill. However, that was okay. And then one day, this is an interesting one, uh, we were down on the flights waiting to uh, find an aeroplane, and there was a tannoy message came up saying, enemy aircraft approaching, all ground crews man the guns, but do not fire. Repeat, do not fire. And suddenly a, a JU-88 appeared in the circus, in the circuit with uh, one Spitfire on a wingtip and another one on his tail, and it landed. Uh, it was. It looked brand new to me. It was beautifully painted, and uh, it had. Dozens, it seemed to have dozens of antennae on it. So it must have been a night fighter. 
expression. And uh, crew got out. There was the the uh, pilot was a, a colonel, Oberst, and his crew, and they defected from Norway. They housed them in the officers' mess for a week, and I suppose they treated them very nicely and uh, got out of them all they could. Uh, two test pilots were sent up from Farnborough, from the Royal Aircraft Establishment, to collect this 88 and take it back to Farnborough. And uh, on the way up, they, uh, they were in a bowfighter and they hit a hill with a hard centre, both killed. So they had to send another one up, and eventually they rescued the 88 and took it down. From there, I was posted to uh, 140 Squadron, which was a PR squadron, down at uh, a place called Hartford Bridge, which was rechristened Blackbush after a few years. And uh, there I commenced my operational career. I, uh, my arrival was rather unusual, or <laughs> surprising. Uh, I went into the sergeant's mess, and I was a flight sergeant at that time. Went into the sergeant's mess, and uh, there was another sergeant came in. He said, you the new pilot? I said, yes. He said, hide. I said, what do you mean, hide? He says, hide. Why? Well, we've got to go and sleep in tents. This was July, June or July, so it was a pleasant interlude as far as I was concerned. Uh, however, this guy and I became great friends. He died just about a couple of months ago. Uh, so we, we only stayed in tents for a week or two. But on my fourth trip, yes, my fourth up, I had... Um, I had trouble in a big way. I was just crossing out over, I, I had to do a job at uh, Ushant, the Isle of Ushant, which is the westernmost point of France. And so I was flying down to the west country, England, crossing out at a place called Start Point. I just got out and I heard a big uh, fighter sweep going on in uh, over France which seemed to involve a Canadian wing, and these Canadians were all yattering and chattering at one another on the radio. And presently a very uh, calm English voice came on and said, awfully sorry chaps, I've got to leave you. He said, uh, I've been shot up and I, I just can't uh, get back. And these, this lot all started encouraging him and saying, well, get to the coast and ditch or bail out over the sea. We'll patrol you until the acid rescue arrives. So I thought I may as well have my two pennies. So I pressed the transmit and uh, gave him words of encouragement. And just as I released the switch, there was the most awful bang from my port wing root. And I looked out and the wing root had sprouted out just like that. And the engine started pouring smoke. It wasn't enemy action. So I thought, well, I was 30,000 feet, so I thought, well, what do I do now? Well, the obvious thing was to get back over land again, which I did, and then started to lose height, because I couldn't bail out at 30,000. 
and uh, I got down eventually to about 9,000 and uh, thought, well, this is where I get out. But of course, getting out uh, proved to be the big problem. The Spitfire hood had a little ball attached to it, like a golf ball, about as big as a golf ball. You pulled that, that released some pins at the side, you heaved with your elbows and the hood flew off. That was the theory. The theory didn't work in practice. The thing was just jammed solid. So, you couldn't normally slide a Spitfire hood back uh, if you were doing in excess of 140. Anyhow, I'd, by then, I had uh, been in a steep dive. The wings, as I pulled out, the wings had started to corrugate and things were a bit fraught. So we, uh, the, the only thing I could do then was to uh, leave the plane to its own devices, more or less. And uh, it stood on its tail, just almost straight up, put my finger up and got the hood uh, catch and it slid back like that. So I opened, I was doing 180 at the time, uh, so uh, I opened the door, which meant that uh, it couldn't slide forward. So that was that. And then got to the top of this and turned over, the centrifugal force uh, of course lifted me right up. I was all ready to dive over the seat and I realised I hadn't unhooked my, uh, I'd unhooked the seat belt, but I hadn't unhooked the oxygen or the uh, radio. So I fell back in the seat, dived again, then eventually turned on its side and I dived out of that door. And instead of counting ten, I shouted, ten, <laughs> pulled the ripcord and uh, that was it, floated down. So that was the end of my, uh, my up that day. It was my fourth up. I went on to do 60 and uh, had a wonderful time on the squadron. I was there for 15 months because we couldn't fly unless the weather was uh, reasonable. There was no point in trying to take photographs through cloud in those days. And uh, so had some long trips. I had one down to a place called Mulhaus on the Swiss border, which was further than Berlin. I never did Berlin. We didn't touch Germany at all, our squadron. We were confined to France, north of the Loire, and uh, the Holland and Belgium. We mapped the whole of northern France in that area with photographs. That was not a very nice job because you had to fly straight and level for half an hour. See, if you wobbled the aircraft, you were uh, throwing the photograph out. The, plane, the camera being fixed, there were twin cameras being fixed. There were 36 inch lenses on those. We had uh, oblique cameras as well, which were 14 inches. The uh, sighting mechanism for the uh, uh, for the obliques would probably interest you as a, a cameraman. We had a a ring on the 
side of the uh, hood and a cross on the wingtip and you lined the two up. <laughs> so that was the way you sighted the thing. Course, what, mark, the, what mark of Spitfire was this? Oh, uh, we started out with fours and then we went to elevens. The eleven was a beautiful aeroplane. It was uh, had a retracting tail wheel. Uh, it had top speed of about 470, I think it was, which was pretty good. I left uh, an FW191 day, which uh, was rather pleasing. But uh, I only did about 16, 18, something like that on Spitz, and then we converted to Mozzies. We got navigators, they shipped in a load of navigators and uh, one pilot uh, said uh, to his navigator, now look, I know my way around. I don't need you to tell me. What you have to do, I will tell you when, and you will then crawl down into the nose and uh, adjust the bomb sight so that you can see the target coming along it and give me instructions. But I will tell you, I will tell you when to switch the cameras on. And then you come out, you sit down uh, in your seat and keep quiet. <laughs> this is the guy who died a fortnight ago, uh, a couple of months ago. Uh, but his navigator was uh, quite an interesting... Do you want to hear all this? Yeah, yeah. Um, his navigator was quite an interesting character. He was a lad, I think he was about 19. And uh, when they arrived, we sort of crewed up, you sort of looked around them and decided, well, he looks a reasonable sort of character. But uh, this uh, navigator was a guy called Preston, George Preston. He was, about, he was only about 19 and uh, he looked younger. He was a real baby face. And he crewed up with a pilot called Mersham, Les Mersham. And one day these two were out on a familiarization flight and uh, they, had, they were coming into land. Uh, weather wasn't all that good, but uh, it was a, a pretty grim day, but visibility was good enough. And, uh, some clown was riding a bike across the end of the runway and came close to being beheaded. Uh, however, Les swung away in the process. He was so low, he hit one of these uh, transformer boxes. This, the plane cartwheeled along right outside our crew room, burst into flames, and we dashed out to see if we could do anything. And when we were able to get out there, we saw the navigator standing there, looking very red-faced, and the pilot lying on the grass. And what had happened was that uh, they'd crashed. I think Preston had been thrown clear, but he went back in and pulled the pilot out, who had a broken leg, and laid him on the grass. So Preston got a George Medal for that, richly deserved. Well, uh, his next pilot was a replacement, a man called Raphael. And away they went on a, a familiarization practice flight.
had just taken off, both engines cut, and they landed in the, in the bomb dump, uh, which was uh, covered in sort of uh, little saplings. Preston got uh, a sapling through his flying boot, which missed his foot. It went between the arch of his foot and the uh, and the uh, sole. Uh, Raphael was unhurt, uh, so they got another aeroplane and away they went. And they went up to 30,000 feet, where Raphael got the bends. He had not had a decompression test, which was uh, unbelievable, but uh, he hadn't. So he was thrown off the squadron, and that left Preston looking for another pilot. Well, my friend Pete, who a man with a huge heart, said he would take Preston on. So he took Preston on. On their first op together, there were over uh, eastern France, I think it was, yeah. Uh, quite well down, as we used to say, down in the bowels. And uh, they were approaching the target, and Pete said, uh, well, you better get down. So uh, he got down. He could look round the corner of the Spitfire, round the side of the uh, instrument display. He said, get down. So he got down, and Pete was looking around, and he said, uh, OK, camera's on. No, not a sound. You could hear the cameras go going through the RT. No camera. Put the cameras on. No response. So Pete undid his straps, bent down, and grabbed Preston by the backside and pulled him out. And Preston was black in the face. His oxygen tube had become disconnected. So Pete got the oxygen tube, rammed it in his mouth, and uh, Preston came round. And they carried on. So after that, uh, Pete was posted after that. He'd finished his tour. And uh, nobody would take Preston on. So he was posted. He was a jinx. So that was that. Well, I uh, completed my 60 ops. On the day, the squadron was moving over to uh, France after the invasion. And uh, I was posted to the number three Number one ferry unit, which operated from uh, the centre of England, and uh, pick up an aircraft. Either, of, well, they're mainly uh, mainly uh, mosquitoes, occasionally bow fighters. I think I got two bow, bow fighters, and the rest were mosquitoes. And take them off to North Africa, uh, ending up in Cairo quite often, sometimes end up in a place called Bleeder, which was near Algiers. Uh, and once, uh, when we got to Cairo, they said, uh, look, we've got a cholera epidemic here. Would you mind, and half our crews are down, would you mind taking this through to uh, India, to Karachi? Okay, we'll take it through, so long as you let them know back home where we are. So away we went to Karachi, we went through uh, Bahrain, we night stopped in Bahrain.
where the officer's mess was a straw hat and the beer glasses were uh, beer bottles cut down with the uh, usual uh, lighted string, petrol soaked string, and dumped it cold water. Uh, we got through to Karachi. They had a cholera epidemic. Oh, would you mind taking this on to Nagpur, which was right in the centre of England? So we took it on to Nagpur, and that was the end of that trip. Uh, we map read, map read all our way, all the way from England to Nagpur, and then came back as passengers, of course, on uh, sometimes BOAC, sometimes uh, rough planes. On that occasion, we had a Dakota, and there were only five of us on board, and I was the only pilot. And the captain came on, came on board, looked around, and he said, "Ah, you're the second pilot." So I was second pilot all the way back to England, which passed the time away quite well. We had a night stop at uh, Habaniya, which was the airport for Baghdad which was very interesting. So I can say I've been to Baghdad. Uh, that lasted for six months. Uh, it wasn't very pleasant in the uh, mess because the ferry unit seemed to be peopled with uh, crews who'd never heard a shot fired in, in anger and had no intention of hearing one if they could get away with it. Uh, so we weren't very popular. But we had, uh, we all had cars there. Uh, getting petrol wasn't all that bad. Uh, but when we were leaving, I was filling up my car with petrol, which we'd siphoned from the CO's car the night before. And he came round and he said, uh, oh, you're leaving us, shop." I said, yes, sir. Where are you going? Back to the squadron, sir. Oh, are you pleased to be going? Very pleased, sir not half as pleased as I am to see you lot go, <laughs> which we took as a compliment. <laughs> so that was the end of that. Went back to the squadron. We arrived. Uh, the war wasn't quite over, but it was only a couple of weeks, so we didn't see any action at all. And uh, a squadron by then had made its way to Eindhoven in Holland. And this so, is the same squadron you were with? Yes. Before. Yes, so we got to Eindhoven and uh, we had quite a time there, there no flying. We had uh, a bit of trouble with the, uh, uh, the civilians around. They'd had an appalling time under the Germans, and, uh, but uh, it didn't stop them stealing our parachutes and uh, the uh, emergency packs out of the dinghies, the food out of the dinghies, which was rather annoying, because at night sometimes, you'd, going home to the, going out of the mess and going back to bed, you'd see a, quite a display of uh, fireworks, and flares, which they'd nicked out of the, out of the uh, dinghies. So that was it, and then from there, where did I go? I'd have, no, yes, came back to England, uh, posted to a place called Firstfield, which was in Suffolk, a bleak, bleak, cold, horrible place. 
Then I met my wife, so it can't have been all that horrible, can it? We've been married now for 64 years. So we uh, got to uh, Firstfield, where they had paddocks absolutely packed with mosquitoes and uh, Mitchells and uh, oh, it was mainly uh, mosquitoes and Mitchells. Uh, and there were about four pilots there and our job was to test these things after they'd been serviced. Well, servicing consists of a good kick on the tyres and uh, uh, the petrol uh, bowser would be brought around and filled up and that was it. Um, I think I've got to go back here and explain to you something about the Spitfires we flew. They were really flying petrol tanks because uh, the fours we had were conver converted ones or twos, which had had a hard time during the Battle of Britain, a lot of them. They blanked off the main spar and the gun ports, of course, and so the, each wing held 60 gallons. We had 85 in the main tanks in front, right just behind the instrument panel, and 15 under the seat, which of course could have been rather exciting if you'd been shot at. Uh, with no armour plate, we'd know where radio at first, but uh, we did get the VHF radio eventually. So the the big problem was uh, feeding the petrol because it took off on the main tank, which was the one in front of you, and then switched to one of the wing tanks. You couldn't use both at once. So as you gradually used up 60 gallons from your starboard tank, say, you became very left wing low and holding that up was rather tiring. You mentioned when you uh, had to bail out of that Spitfire, mm -hmm. you, you said the hole burst through the wing, but it wasn't yes. enemy fire. So what do you think it was? Ah, well, after the day after I got back to the squadron, the uh, I was told that a scientist from the RAE at Farnborough was coming to see me. He wanted to talk to me about it. Uh, so I told him what had happened and he said, okay, well, I'm going down there to uh, look at the wreckage. The wreckage was spread along oh, about two or three hundred metres. The engine was seven feet deep anyhow, and the rest of it was spread along about 200 metres. And uh, so away he went and he came back and he said, this caused your loss of control. He put his hand in his pocket and he pulled out a little uh, piece of metal about so big, which was a turnbuckle for tightening the aerial, uh, tightening the uh, control wires. He said, it's too small. They put the wrong one in. That's why I said the ground staff, I thought they were out to get me. Uh, and I said, yes, but what about the wing blowing up? oil pressure relief valve jammed. So that was the cause, and then the engine was starved of oil, 
And that's why you got the smoke coming out of it. Earlier too, when you were talking about being in hospital, when you said that you were shot down, you didn't explain that. Can you tell me the story of being shot down? I can't remember much about it at all. I'm what, sorry. What were you in? Bowfighter. Bowfighter was a difficult plane to get out of too. Well, all aeroplanes were because uh, they didn't build them for you to get out of. You uh, to do a back somersault to get out of a bowfighter in a hurry. Because the... Uh, Exit was a hole in the floor behind the seat. Uh, I, I encountered a, a German night fighter, I think, and uh, that was it. TU-88. And this was over England? Mm -hmm. It was a frequent thing at that time. The, the, uh, we did it as well, don't, uh, don't get me wrong, but they used to go... Where, find an, air, uh, an airfield which had lights on and then fly around the circuit and uh, just enjoy themselves. It's like shooting, duck shooting. Well, I mean, that's quite something to have to flip the aircraft onto its back. You don't really remember the actual process of it? Oh, oh you pulled a lever and the back of the seat collapsed. And you threw your legs over your head and came out like that. That's the way out of a bowfighter. Do you remember physically doing it though? Barely, barely. No, I, I probably knocked my head or something as I came out. I was very low. I was only about, uh, well, last time I looked at the altimeter, it was a bit less than a thousand. I had no engines, no motors. It was night. And where did, where did you land? Oh, in, in Yorkshire, between uh, Leeds and York. So what was it? Grassland or? Oh yes, yeah, yeah. I was fortunate because uh, I landed near to um, uh, an observer corps post and they came and uh, got me. But when I was, I was taken into the nearest sick service, sick quarters, which is army as it happened, I stayed there for two or three days. <coughs> And there was a, a large lady dressed in Salvation Army bonnet and uniform came in one day. And she said, uh, how was I feeling? I said, Still alive. I couldn't walk, of course. And uh, she said, do you smoke? I said, well, when I get cigarettes, yes. She said, right, I should, uh, you can have a packet. And she gave me a packet of fags. Do you like chocolate? I said, yes, when I can get some. She produced a bar of chocolate. And of course, I've always supported the Salvation Army since then, and they come round with their appeals. Uh, I've got a great deal of time for them. They were very good. Mm. Uh, what did you prefer flying, the Mosquito or the Spitfire? Uh, the Mosquito was a beautiful airplane and easy to fly once you got it off the ground. But uh, takeoff was uh, could be a bit dicey because it had a huge swing on takeoff. Uh, Spitfire had no vices whatever. It was just a bit light because it required minimal movement to put it into a vertical climb. But it was a lovely airplane, but the Mosquito was light too. 
we found that uh, flying the mosquito, that if you, that you line it up on the runway and you would uh, put the brakes on, hold the brakes on, open the throttles halfway and you'd feel the tail beginning to lift and as soon as that happened you'd release the brakes and away you go and you had control then. Oh, it was a, a super airplane. It's going to be marvellous to see this one fly it. Oh it is, yes. I used to, I had to go down to uh, Hatfield one day to uh, the factory, the Haviland factory, when I was on the squadron. And uh, I met, uh, oh, I checked in at the watch office, parked my aircraft and checked in at the watch office. It was a, a rotten day, lowish, lowish cloud. Uh, probably cloud was what, about 1,500 feet. And there was a, a mosquito came screaming across the uh, airfield, uh, about, about that far off the ground. One motor feathered and pulled up into a vertical climb and a vertical roll as it did it. And uh, so I said to the guy in the watch office, who was that? He said, oh, that's Geoffrey de Havilland. Probably the finest pilot of his time. And then he was killed, of course, when his uh, plane blew up on him, going through the sound barrier. When I left my squadron on the 31st of August, 44, when they went over to Europe, as I explained, by Christmas there wasn't anybody left that I knew. A lot had been posted, don't get me wrong, they hadn't all been knocked off or prisoners, but uh, they were, uh, it had changed completely. When I trained at my service flying school on Oxford's, we had, uh, I think, 51 on the course. Two were killed on the course. They got themselves up through cloud and dived through it into a formation of uh, Polish Wellingtons. And uh, they were both killed. I don't know how many Wellingtons went down. But uh, it was just disobedience, the disobeyed orders. But of the 49, in a year afterwards, there were only two of us left alive and in England. It was carnage. Yeah. It's hard to believe, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, I've seen it all. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. that love is blind Still we're often told Seek him ye shall find So I'm going to seek a certain land I've had in mind Looking everywhere 
haven't found him yet. He's the big affair I cannot forget. Only man I ever think of with regret. Somebody I'm longing to see I hope that he turns out to be Someone to watch over me I'm a little Tell him, please, to put on. 